You're listening to the Converging Paths podcast, brought to you by Barakat Trust, with the support of the Altajir Trust and the Aga Khan Trust for Culture. Welcome, everyone. I'm Saif al-Rashidi from the Barakat Trust, and I'm very happy to welcome Arthur Bile from the Wallace Collection. He's the Hutton McRoberts Assistant Curator of Ottoman, Middle Eastern, and Asian Arms and Armor. So a very impressive title. Welcome, and thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that strikes me, Arthur, is that arms and armor are often overlooked today. And I wondered what sparked your own interest in the subject? So I'm, I, I'm traditionally trained as an art historian. I did a master's degree in Persian art history at university. And from there, during those studies, I got really interested in kind of the material culture of the 18th and 19th century. And that's really kind of a whole range of objects. It's not just the big kind of obvious arts like painting, but we're also very interested in, for example, printed books, in, in ceramics and all of these kinds of things. And from there, I kind of discovered just how important arms and armor were in society back then and how kind of, you know, how much prestige they held within that society and how comparatively we I think don't accord it that role anymore for, for, you know, a variety of reasons. And that's kind of got me into Arms and Armour. And since I've been at the Wallace Collection, where I work exclusively with Arms and Armour, really opened my eyes to just how many ways of approaching Arms and Armour there are, how many angles you can take, and really how complicated it is as a field of study. And, you know, that's what keeps me interested, really. Well, one of the things that struck me when I visited the Wallace Collection with you is how beautiful many of the objects that are in the arms and armament department are. And that struck me for a collection of items that are supposedly utilitarian. Why are they so beautiful and why are they so lavish and so intricate? Right, yeah, so it's, I think, interesting. I mean, of course, arms and armor has, has such a long history. Arms and armor are basically as old as human society itself. But over time, these objects gain a really they get prestige value, you know, if you are the most important person in your village or in your like region or even in all of Europe, you want your personal belongings, your outfit and arms and armor are kind of an integral part of that in, in the early modern and pre-early pre modern period. You want those swords and those daggers to, to reflect how grand of a person you are. And because of this prestige value that they carry, they acquire an important value in, for example, a diplomatic circuit. They're one of the most popular gifts between, between rulers or also internally within a court, between courtiers and the monarch, for example. So the gifting of swords and of daggers is really an integral part of, I would almost say, you know, human history. I think it's fairly universal. It's certainly the case across the Islamic world, but also kind of all the surrounding polities. So it strikes me as quite a universal aspects of it. I think for me, if I had to compare it to something in, the, in our current day and age to make it kind of relatable to us now, I think it's quite comparable to, for example, kind of an expensive car or, you know, an expensive watch. You know, you don't drive around your Ferrari just because you have to go somewhere, but that is something that is important. So you've got that kind of, it has to function and it is a status symbol. And those two things combined make arms and armor the way they are. I often get the question, you know, is this a ceremonial sword? Usually people see 
all the gold or the gemstones on it and think, oh, this must be kind of for show rather than for fighting. And I find that often people have quite a, um, have, the, have the idea that, you know, it's either for fighting or it's for ceremonies and never for both. And I think that's mistaken. I think these swords and daggers were often used for both. And even if they weren't used for both, uh, even if they were purely ceremonial in their usage, they only acquire this kind of power as, as, a, as a weapon from being functional, I think. So it is, you know, these are multiple uses that kind of intersect, but are independently important as well. Thanks. And are they gifts that are given from more important people to less important people or both ways? It's really both ways. And I think the, the kind of symbolism that comes with it changes depending on the direction. So you have a very, I guess, kind of quite intuitive, very traditional way of gifting your sword to your new overlord. If you've been defeated in war, you kind of symbolically give up your arms to the victor, essentially saying you've kind of earned the right to protect me. I can no longer protect myself. You must do my protecting for me, which is this kind of lord vassal kind of relationship but equally a lord would distribute prestigious arms and armor to their own vassals to kind of do the a similar thing but essentially the almost the opposite and saying i give you the responsibility to take part in my brutership and exert my power for on my behalf essentially so it goes the gifting goes both ways but the the kind of the implied ideas behind it are just slightly different, I think. Thanks. Well, turning to the Islamic world, how do arms and armor feature in the popular imaginary? Right. Yeah, in a variety of ways, I think. I mean, of course, the Islamic world is a massive area and you get so many different kind of cultures within that. But there are some, some features that I think are fairly universal. And certainly visual aspects of arms and armor can be rooted in kind of the Hadith and the Quran. Specifically, for example, I think a, a, a visual that a lot of people in the, in the Muslim world will be familiar with is Zulfiqar, the, the sword of Muhammad that he gifted to his son-in-law, uh, Ali. And this is an incredibly popular image, really. And it gets copied a lot. In, you know, it, it's painted a lot. Um, it's poetry is written about it, but also... It is essentially referenced in actual swords. So swords will have been made that have the kind of the characteristics that have been ascribed to Zulfikar. And kind of the key one, which may or may not be a kind of a mistranslation or a misinterpretation of the, the original Arabic, is that it has two points at the end. So instead of having kind of like it's a it's a curved sword, um, and then instead of one point at the end, it has two points, and that's kind of universally almost acknowledged to refer to Zulfiqar, but it's not necessarily uh, something that comes out from, from the, the written descriptions that we have. But it is something that, you know, it's, it's very, it forms a very important part of the, the visual aspects of it. And does it have any properties apart from its physical properties? Of course, it has religious resonance. I think I, I mostly study it as an image or as, as a kind of an object. So that's mostly what I'm interested in. But I would absolutely imagine that it does have very specific connotations. And I would also suspect that those connotations actually do very Images travel very easily between areas, but the connotations don't necessarily travel along with them. 
So uh, Zulfikar might, for example, in Istanbul in the 16th century, have quite different connotations from Qom in the 19th century, for example. And one of the things that is so common to objects produced within the huge realm of the so-called Islamic world is that they often feature inscriptions. Is that true of arms and armor as well? Oh, absolutely, yes. There's a, a long history, really, of, of inscribing arms and armor, which actually is, you know, it's, it's not that easy to do. I think it's worth kind of mentioning the fact that working in steel is quite tricky. I mean, obviously, a sword is designed to be very tough, to be sharp, obviously, to be hard. It's not the most pliable material to work with. But they are usually inlaid or overlaid. So either like something is carved out of the steel and then inlaid with gold, or the surface of the steel is kind of roughened up and then gold is kind of hammered on top of it. It is usually gold, uh, by the way, and that's what, you know, why I said gold. And then you get a whole range of inscriptions, really. We have a fantastic dagger in the Wallace collection, which dates back to the the very end of the 15th century. It's likely to have been made in Herat, so it's the Timurid court there. Uh, Herat, by the way, a city in uh, modern-day Afghanistan, for those who don't know. And back then, in the, in the late 15th century, this massive cultural entity, extremely important, extremely influential across, across the Islamic world from that point onwards. And this dagger is inlaid with a beautiful kind of vine patterns. It's got little animals on it, all very small, very finely worked in gold. And then it's got two inscriptions on it. It's got one line of Persian poetry. And then, as is traditional in Persian poetry, be subdivided into two half lines, essentially. And then in the middle of those two half lines, there is an Arabic aphorism. Well, it specifically says, within the name of the wise, the unaware takes form in abundance. And it's, I think, what I've interpreted as a kind of a call to humbleness, which is probably quite important when you carry this extremely rich, extremely beautiful dagger. It's probably, you know, good to be reminded that you are not the, the king of everything, essentially. And having poetry and having this kind of like literary references on daggers is fairly, I suppose, very, fairly common. Certainly, it's, it's kind of, it's very highbrow literature, if I, if I can put it that way, that's being put on these daggers. And these courts, uh, like the court in Herat and subsequent courts, for example, the Mughals in India, the, the Ottomans in Istanbul, of course, the Safavids uh, as well, they all place very high value on poetry and on composing their own poetry, on attracting very celebrated poets to their courts. This kind of a cultivation of a, a poetic court culture is extremely important. And this is reflected on, on the dagger. So they often feature this kind of poetry, sometimes their own um, and sometimes poetry by famous poets. And what are some of the most surprising poems you found? Well, there is a certain tendency, I think, within poetry on swords and daggers and on armor as well, really any kind of arms and armor object. Um, to refer to the object that it's on. So, you know, daggers will have poems that refer to daggers, swords have poetry that refer to swords, and so on. But I think with that as a given, and that's almost always true, with that as a given, often the poetry itself is not very martial. So it will, you know, have a description of, or not description, but a, a mention of a dagger. But then the actual contents of the poem will be 
it will be love poetry, for example. And we have a, a really nice dagger in our collection, which is inscribed with uh, lines from the, the Ottoman poet Baki. For example, one of the lines is, Baki's hand would have encircled the beloved's waist had not your blood spilling dagger come between. So sure, it features that dagger and it features like a little bit of kind of, you know, violence, but it's really, it's really a, a, a little line about the lover and it fits into this, this particular dagger has four such lines on it and they're by different poets, but they all feature the dagger and then they are about the lover. They're kind of the content of it is the lover, but the, the language is kind of dagger related. And you find a lot of words also that kind of substitute for dagger in maybe not entirely uh, intuitive sense. So the leaf of a lily, for example, is often equated with a, a dagger. Also the letter Ra, um, the Arabic or Persian letter Ra, which is kind of the same shape as a dagger, is often equated with the dagger. So daggers and swords form a very kind of rich source material for poetry. And this poetry then kind of comes back on these swords and daggers as well. So there's a really kind of complex relationship between the objects themselves and kind of the way people talk about them uh, at the time. And what do you think love poetry is doing on a dagger or a sword? I think it appeals to this kind of highbrow court culture. I think it's something, you know, you want to show off the dagger, you've got so many gems and uh, gold on your dagger and that shows off you know that you're a very wealthy man and it is often men it is very much a, a kind of we're talking really about male fashion if you like with arms and armor if the gold and the gemstone show up that you're wealthy then the poetry and the kind of the how good the poetry is shows off how cultured you are and that that is equally important for a ruler if not if not more important um, so it does kind of tie into that prestige value of these objects and I suppose if you also have feelings and are sentimental, it shows that you're a well-rounded person. Absolutely. Yes, I, absolutely. And I think that's, of course, very important. Um, you have to be this kind of, well, you're the, essentially the, the figurehead of, of the policy, right? So it is important that you show all that. Well, when you're talking, it makes me want to ask you the question of, how closely did people look at arms and armor and who would have seen them? Like the daggers that you're talking about with poetry and gemstones, apart from the wearer. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I often kind of think of arms and armor, especially armor, but in, in general, I think of arms and armor as kind of a, a midway point between fashion on the one hand, you know, just regular kind of clothing and jewelry. And then on the other kind of, end of that scale and kind of monumental architecture you know the kind of the big palaces and mosques and buildings that were commissioned by rulers and you've got these when you look at these big architectural projects these are obviously things that are meant to be seen by everyone right the interior maybe not so much but kind of the grand facades the big domes all of that is very much meant to be seen by by everyone whereas kind of private jewelry private clothing is maybe not really meant to be seen kind of outside a very small circle and arms and armor is kind of in between on the one hand it is something that you wear on the person so obviously it doesn't have the scale of, of architecture but it has this very close link with the person itself and it's also something that's not kind of casually worn you know 
it's not something that you just kind of wear when you're sitting in, in, in a garden, maybe having kind of a small gathering. It's really for the, the court ceremonies. It's for kind of official court culture, and maybe processions, things like that. So I would say it is very much meant to be seen and in a, a slightly larger circle than just kind of the inner court. I'm sure not everyone in the public would be able to kind of read the inscription because they would be seeing it from very far away and they'd see, you know, the beautiful jade hills. They would probably see like the gemstones, but they wouldn't get to see it up close. And I suppose and we don't really have much primary source material on how people view these objects, unfortunately. But I, I suppose that this level of detail would essentially also create a hierarchy between those who are not able to see the object at all, and then the people who are able to see the object, but only from a distance, like I mentioned, the kind of the hill, but not any of the details, and then the people who are kind of within a smaller inner circle and are able to admire every little detail. So, yeah, these objects, they play a role in this kind of court culture, and they... I think they're made correspondingly. And I think one of the things that actually I would like to pursue more, this is something that hasn't really been studied yet at all in, in terms of arms and armor uh, specifically, is the kind of scientific theories at the time of, of seeing and how seeing works. Basically starting from Ibn al-Haytham, who was crucial in the, in the history of the study of optics and who really wrote a lot about not just kind of the science of or what we would consider today the science of seeing, but also the kind of like the theological implications of that and just generally kind of how it works in a more kind of holistic uh, sense uh, within society. And in the medieval period, you, you have this sense that there are two ways of seeing. You've kind of got like a glancing seeing, you know, you'll, you'll catch something with your eye. You don't really look at it properly, but you have an idea of what it is and you've seen it. And then secondly, a kind of a way of contemplative seeing, something that takes much more time um, and something that is essentially the visual equivalent to kind of contemplating something. And the second way of seeing is certainly the kind of the more important one, the more necessary one. And what you find in medieval art, uh, not specifically in arms and art, but art in general, is that quite often really complex patterns, really complex kind of works of art are made that induce this contemplative seeing. Basically, you're looking at things that are impossible to grasp just by a quick look at them. And you have to kind of spend more time looking at it. And this is almost a kind of a kind of a, a religious experience almost to look very carefully. And I think this also applies to arms and armor in the same sense. But we're really talking about the medieval period and whether this holds up in the 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th century remains to be seen. When did Ibn al-Haytham write? Oh, he wrote in the 11th century. I think actually he's writing from Egypt. He's occasionally described as al-Misri. So yeah, I'm pretty sure he wrote from Egypt. Uh, but people are very itinerant, um, move around a lot. He would have been read widely. He would not have been read kind of locally to where he wrote. Thank you. And when I mentioned the Islamic world in the first bit of the conversation, you pointed out that it's a huge region and it's very diverse and has different, different kind of subcultures. And I wondered mm -hmm. on that note whether the arms and armor of the Islamic world differ from, say, cultures that are predominantly non-Muslim or are they the same? 
Well, it's quite interesting, I think. Well, one of the things to remember or to realize, I think, about arms and armor is that these objects are very mobile. They travel easily, not just kind of physically in the sense that they're, you know, quite small, quite easy to carry, but also the fact that quite often their use, their kind of principal use of fighting involves going somewhere else and fighting there. Uh, You know, typically you don't fight in your own home. And if you do, it's because someone else came to your home to fight you. So there's always a kind of a travel component to any kind of traditional use of arms and armor uh, in, a, in the martial sense. And equally, you know, a great source of artistic interaction, if you can call it that, in terms of arms and armor, is people picking up loot at the end of a battle. And you see, you know, when the, when the Ottomans advanced through the Balkans, uh, quite a lot of kind of local arms and armor forms are then kind of integrated into the Ottoman production. And subsequently, when, you know, Austria, Poland, Hungary, all, all these kinds of people conquered the Balkans from, from the Ottomans, when the Ottomans have to retreat, essentially, um, the same thing happens. A lot of Ottoman forms are kind of integrated into arms and armor that's being, that are being produced in Austria. Um, one of the more striking ones, more immediately obvious examples to me is Ottoman swords or swords rather that look exactly like Ottoman swords which are often inscribed with uh, specific verses from the Quran and they kind of they sit on a certain part of the blade kind of along the the edge essentially and they're usually quite long so it's kind of it's almost a, a distinct genre of inscriptions but always Quranic of course for the Ottoman swords but later on and not even that much later on you get you start seeing Greek and Russian swords formally basically identical and also having that kind of long inscription along the edge of the blade but of course quranic would make no sense or would make less sense so these are then quotations from the bible in church slavonic or in in greek so the kind of the, it's interesting how the visual components the visual kind of characteristics of these swords are maintained and it's really just a content that kind of gets substituted for something that's more palatable to um, the, the new uh, wielder of the sword. Um, there's a really interesting dagger, actually, kind of if we look at it all the way towards the other end of the Islamic world, a really interesting dagger that was on the art market quite recently. And it had, it was beautifully enameled. It was from India. And it had both Shia inscriptions, uh, some quotations from the Quran, and then some Shia prayers. And then a number of Hindu deities depicted on it. And it's the same object. And these, and that, the enameling was done very clearly at the same time. So it's not a case of, you know, it changed hands and, and um, the object was changed. And it poses so many kind of questions. And I think when we look at it from a kind of 21st century, we look back at these societies and we tend to kind of almost assume that um, distinctions between Shia and Sunni, between Hindu and Muslim, and these are all kind of like they're set, they're clear distinctions. Like you're either Muslim or you're Hindu, and this is completely these are completely separate worlds. And you find that I think actually in practice it, it's probably a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and certainly people will have identified as as one or the other, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean their practice or the, the kind of the objects that they owned were completely distinct either. As a kind of more pedestrian example the kind of traditional Shia uh, Muharram processions, ones that commemorate the martyrdom of Hussein, those were widely attended by non-Shias in places like Lucknow as well, for example. 
So it is a little bit more fluid, I think, than, than people maybe sometimes assume. Well, I think sometimes if we look at modern life mm -hmm. and the way in which most of us are products of many different ideas and many different societies that come together, it was similar then. We sometimes imagine that people were just of one place or of one way of thinking. But I think the beauty of objects like the one you just described is that they remind us that we are a multiplicity of things and we are inspired and seek solace in different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And you alluded to the fact that armor and arms are very mobile and is something exotic or foreign in arms and armor generally highly prized? Or, I mean, do we have examples of courts trading with other courts or I know someone being very excited that they have a dagger or a sword or a shield that's come from very far away? Yeah, no, absolutely. You get that quite a lot and a lot of, in a lot of different ways, I think. So what we cover in the Wallace collection, like I mentioned, is like 15th to 19th century, um, which is actually, you know, quite a long time. And of course, the Islamic world is, of the, the so-called Islamic world is, is, is rather large as well. So we find lots of different dynamics across this area and across these time periods. When we are looking at, for example, the kind of the, the heyday of the Ottomans, you know, the, the late 15th century and then the 16th century, and Venice, and look at their interaction, you see that, you know, there are wonderful Venetian shields that are made in Venice. And, uh, you know, we know they're made in Venice, but they look so Ottoman. You know, we've got all these kind of motifs, all these parts of it that make it just give it a very kind of Ottoman feel to it. And this is a time period when, you know, Venice was rich and powerful, but it was nothing compared to the Ottoman court. And the Ottoman court, as a result, it exerts this kind of normative court culture on surrounding courts where, you know, things that are popular at the Ottoman court inevitably kind of filter down to the smaller courts surrounding it. So you see that dynamic. And as a result, you kind of see Ottoman art and Ottoman inspired art in, in Venice, especially, but in lots of Italian city states. Um, but then, of course, the dynamic is very different when you look at the late 18th and especially in the 19th century, uh, when you look at India and you see kind of investigate its relationship with the British Empire, where, of course, it's the British Empire that's really extremely powerful in relation to many of the local courts. And you do get a similar dynamic, I suppose. But when you then look at kind of why Indian art and Indian arms and armor becomes popular in uh, well, among British people in India and also in, in Britain, it is much more kind of an assertion of dominance, a kind of an assertion of India is, is owned by Britain. And therefore, these forms of art, these forms of arms and armor are part of well, how they would see it would be our, you know, our sphere. And that's also a mechanic that, you know, it's not exclusive to the British Empire. You see, for example, in when the Qing dynasty conquers Central Asia, Xinjiang, you see that local art forms and art forms that are kind of like slightly beyond there. So Indian art, especially, um, becomes very popular in the China, in the, the Qing court with exactly that mechanic of this is now part of the Qing empire. This is now part of our empire. And so we are entitled to these art forms. Um, so the dynamics kind of change. Um, and you mentioned uh, kind of people being excited about, you know, particular swords or particular kind of origins of swords. And there is the, the, the Talpur court in uh, what is now southern Pakistan in, in Sindh. They were kind of known for 
collecting swords essentially like really collecting it in a way that we don't really have much evidence for prior to that i don't think um and so as a result there are lots of swords that have all these elaborate inscriptions saying you know this was made by a famous swordsmith it came from Shah Abbas or Shah Tahmas from Iran, for example, or one of the great Mughal emperors. And then there's also you know, a little inscription saying yeah, this belongs to this certain Talpur ruler. You know, there were multiple of them who, who did this. So yeah, there is that kind of collecting going on as well. But it's it's such a it's such a big change going from the 15th century to the 19th century. So much changes. And I think that's maybe one of the most interesting parts. And I think one of the really interesting components of that is also that we're looking essentially at well, a fairly static art form in the sense that swords remain swords this entire period, but the kind of the world around swords changes completely. In the 15th century, a sword is one of the primary kind of weapons of war. But by the 19th century, battles are not decided by swords, they are decided by cannons. And so the, while the objects stay broadly the same in terms of, you know, a sword will stay a sword, and we keep studying the sword. We don't start studying the gun as soon as it becomes kind of the replacement of the sword. Um, we keep studying the sword, but the kind of the world that around it completely changes. And that affects how swords are made as well and how they are decorated and how they're kind of related with by people around them. So I've been to places like Yemen where people still wear daggers. And what would you say about the, the consistent use of arms and armor in some societies today how do these weapons bear the history and the heritage of the way that people always use them and how are they different yeah so it's a really i think it's a really interesting question and i think well i i would say that also these are not things questions that have been extensively studied and that you know they're already on uncontroversial answers to so this is all it's still quite exploratory i would say but my feeling is that these, this use of daggers in Yemen today, in Oman, my feeling is that all the uses that are extant today are uses that will have existed for a long time, but they're not necessarily the full scope of uses from the past. So I think over time, there's been a kind of a narrowing of functions for these objects. It's also reflected in the fact that visually, these objects become, have become more uniform in the last two, three centuries, where you have a really huge variety of daggers and swords and sword forms in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. And by the 20th century, it just, it does feel like it's become a little more narrow. And really what people are doing when they're creating new daggers is they are copying older ones. And maybe not necessarily literally, and certainly not in the sense of like wanting to create like a forgery of it. Like there's no kind, that's not a component of it at all. But certainly there is less scope for kind of radical changes in how these daggers are made because they appeal much more to tradition now, I think, than they would have done in the more distant past. In which times you might be aiming more to have the unusual and the remarkable rather than yeah. the conventional. Absolutely, I think. And there's more scope to kind of explore because there are more functions for these objects. Well, I wondered, are these objects only used by men? Or do we have evidence of women using arms and armor in the period that you, you're a specialist on? So they are primarily, for sure, a primarily male fashion in that sense. So in a court setting, men would wear swords, but typically women would not, you know, in all these kinds of in a diplomatic circuit, all of these scenarios. However, 
when it comes to hunting, hunting is something that was done by women as well. And all the tools of hunting are therefore also used by women. So you know, we have evidence of the wives of Mu emperors going out for hunts with their own guns and yeah, using those. So it's, I think, arms and armor for, it's also not necessarily a given that you would be able to distinguish a sword that was made for a man from a sword that was made for a woman, for example. You know, these are, it's sword is a sword, ultimately. And I have seen no evidence of there being any kind of a gender difference in physical objects in that sense. But absolutely, we know that women owned guns for hunting. And presumably also, you know, other objects for hunting. And it would not, it would not surprise me at all if we found evidence of women carrying weapons at any point, really. But certainly less frequently and less routinely than men. Well, I think you've really widened our perspective on the use of arms and armor and the different ways of seeing and contemplation and their values in society. And I wondered, if you, just to close, if you could tell us what sort of things you're working on at the moment. Sure, yeah. So at the World Selection, we, we are working on a, a big project of cataloging the entire non-European arms and armor holdings. And this has been an ongoing project for a while, and we are hoping to publish um, kind of a catalogue, a big catalogue, I think by the end of 2023. So that's something to look forward to. But that's kind of what I'm working on. And I have basically no time or space for anything else because it's obviously such a big project and such an important project. But it is very exciting. And what I would like to do, I think, in the future, and what I hope that also the catalogue can make a bit of a contribution towards is to study arms and armor more as a part of art history. I think right now it's very much kind of considered its own thing. And people who study art history, whether that's general art history or, you know, Islamic art history specifically, I think arms and armor are always kind of a kind of a sideshow to it if they're involved at all. And I think, I think it would be really interesting to, you know, delve into that more and really see it as art more. Well, you should definitely do it. Just from listening to you for half an hour, you've taught us so many new things. And for someone whose name means sword, I don't think I'll ever look at a sword in the same way again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a very exciting field. I'm very happy to, to work in it. I hope people will be excited to look into it more and also come to the Wallace Collection to actually see our swords and daggers because they are definitely worth looking at. One of our highlight, if I make a market that, is a incredible dagger with a hilt that's almost entirely made out of gold set with almost 2,000 gemstones and was a personal possession of Shah Jahan in all likelihood. So that's pretty exciting. Wow, how amazing that you have a dagger that belonged to the man who built one of the most famous buildings in the world, the Taj Mahal. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Arthur. Once again, it's been really fascinating listening to you and I hope people will take your invitation up and come and visit your collection at the Wallace collection. Thank you so much. Thank you.